You know, one of the most photographed and famous houses of all times is a house that's located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in uh, Washington, D.C. And of course, this is called the White House. It's a house that is home to the American president. The history of the White House, the history of D.C. in general, goes all the way back to the American Revolution. It goes back to the vision of General George Washington to relocate the Capitol and the presidential mansion from New York City to a new location along the Potomac River, which is now known as the District of Columbia. The initial time of development, Washington, D.C. and the National Mall was something of a mosquito-infested swamp. Uh, It wasn't uh, what you see today. But uh, when you visit Washington, D.C. today, it's developed, of course, into one of the most beautiful, popular tourist destinations in the United States. And if you've never been there, I uh, would encourage you sometime uh, to go and to see the Smithsonian and all, all of the sites there in Washington. At the beginning of Washington's development, nine proposals were submitted for the new mansion. The contract uh, eventually went to an Irish architect named James Hoban. And President Washington oversaw the construction of the mansion, but he never actually got to live inside of it. Because during Washington's uh, time in the early days of the American Republic, Philadelphia was the capital city. And John Adams was the first president to actually live in the White House, with the one exception of Harry S. Truman, who uh, lived outside of the White House during a time of of intense renovation. Every president has lived in that house ever since. And uh, we uh, Canadians tried our best to burn it down in uh, the War of 1812, but uh, the uh, external structure survived. It still stands today as a symbol of the American nation and the ideals upon which that nation and republic was founded. Well, this morning, brethren, we are resuming our study in the Old Testament book of Kings. We're considering today the construction and the beautification of two different houses, On the one hand, we're going to be looking at the furnishing, the beautification of God's house, and on the other hand, the construction of Solomon's house, the uh, white house, so to speak, of ancient Israel. And so let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings this morning, and we're going to read chapter 7. 1 Kings, and we are in chapter 7, moving verse by verse and chapter by chapter through this important part of God's Word. We're going to read this chapter. I remind you as I read it that this is God's inspired and inerrant Word. 1 Kings 7, beginning in verse 1. Now Solomon built his house 13 years, and he completed all his house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. Now there were artistic window frames in three rows, and window was opposite window in three ranks. And all the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames. And the window was opposite window in three ranks. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 30 cubits. A porch was in front of them and pillars and a threshold in front of them. 
And he made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment. It was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. Now his house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom Solomon had married. All of these were of precious stones, of stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws inside and outside, even from the foundation to the coping, and so on the outside to the great court. And the foundation was of precious stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. And above were precious stones, stones cut according to measure in cedar. So the great court all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of Yahweh and the porch of the house. Then King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. He was filled with wisdom and discernment and knowledge to do any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars. Seven for the one capital, seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and the two rows around the one network to cover the capitals, which were on top of the pomegranates. So he did for the other capital. Now the capitals, which were on top of the pillars in the porch, were of lily design, four cubits. And there were capitals on the two pillars, even right above the rounded projection, which was on the one side of the network. The pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave, He set up the right pillar and named it Jachin. He set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. And on the top of the pillars was lily design. So the work of the pillars was finished. And he made this sea of cast metal ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form. Its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in its circumference. Now under its brim, gourds went around encircling it, Ten to a cubit, entirely encircling the sea. The gourds were in two rows, cast with the sea when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three facing east. The sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. And it was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom. It could hold two thousand baths. Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits, its width four cubits, its height three cubits. Now this was the workmanship of the stands. They had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders, which were between the frames, were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above and beneath the lions, and oxen were wreath of hanging work. Now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles. And its four feet had supports. Beneath beneath the laver were cast supports with wreaths at each side. And its opening inside the capital was at the top at the top was a cubit. And its opening was round like the workmanship of a pedestal, a cubit and a half. Also on its opening there were engravings, and their borders were square, not round. 
and the four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand. The height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. Now the workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, their hubs were all cast. Now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. And on the top of the stand, there was a circular form, half a cubit high. On top of the stand, its stays and borders were part of it. He engraved on the plates of its stays, not its borders, cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the clear space on each, with wreaths all around. He made the ten stands like this. All of them had one casting, one measure, one form. He also made ten lavers of bronze. One laver held forty baths. Each laver was forty four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one laver. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house, five on the left side of the house. And he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house, eastward toward the south. And Hiram made the lavers, the shovels, and the bowls. So Hiram completed all the work that he did for King Solomon in the house of Yahweh. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals, which were on the top of the two pillars, the two networks to cover the two bowls of the, of the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network, to cover the two bowls of the capitals, which were on the tops of the pillars, the ten stands with the ten lavers on the stands, the one sea and the twelve oxens, uh, oxen under the sea, and the pots and the shovels and the bowls and all these utensils which Hiram made for King Solomon in the house of Yahweh were of polished bronze. On the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkot and Zarethan. And Solomon left all the utensils unweighed because they were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be found out. Solomon also made all the furniture which was in the house of Yahweh the golden altar and the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary of pure gold, and the flowers and the lamps and the tongs of gold, and the cups and the snuffers and the bowls and the spoons and the firepans of pure gold, and the hinges both for the doors of the inner house, the holy of holies, and for the doors of the house, that is, of the nave of gold. Thus all the work that King Solomon did in the house of Yahweh was finished. And Solomon brought in the things set apart as holy by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, it's been a a few weeks now since we've been in this series in the book of Kings, but you'll recall, I hope, we are now in an extended series of this book that is dealing with the construction of the temple. This is uh, a section on building. It was a vision initially put forward by King David, but it was a, a project that was actually brought to completion by David's son, Solomon. Now, though David was the king who first proposed that a permanent temple be constructed in the city of Jerusalem, we know that the plan to centralize Israel's worship didn't start with David. It goes all the way back to the time of Moses. It goes back to the law of the Lord to Revelate or to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now, we know from God's law, we know from the Pentateuch, Israel conducted worship in a mobile tent called the tabernacle for 480 years or so, nearly Uh, Five centuries they worshipped in the tabernacle. 
But we learn from Deuteronomy 12, it was always God's plan from the beginning that the tabernacle would be replaced by a permanent, centralized structure. Although all of the details about the construction project, the measurements, the descriptions, the names of the builders, all of uh, the building materials used, these details, I think, tend to weary us as modern readers. Maybe even as I was reading the text, you were thinking to yourself, Uh, reverently, I'm sure. Let's get on with it. Are we really spending a second week talking about all of these measurements in in the temple? It tends to weary us. But I think there's significance in this. The fact that, and think of this, the the Bible devotes this much space to the temple. Do you think that there may be some significance in that? Five chapters of the Bible here in 1 Kings and and not only in 1 Kings, there's another section, a parallel section, the book of, of 2 Chronicles. This is a huge amount of Scripture devoted to this particular subject and not at the very least tip us off. The temple was not only important to Solomon, the temple is important to the Holy Spirit. And if it's important to God and the Holy Spirit, it ought to be important to us. Uh, it is worth spending time looking at this text. The centralization of worship in Jerusalem, the the construction of this entire complex of buildings, this was a major step forward in the fulfillment of God's master plan, which was, of course, a progressively unfolding plan of redemption, ultimately resulting in something far greater, something far grander than a piece of real estate in the Middle East and a brick-and-mortar building. And given the fact that God's word devotes so much attention to the building of the temple, it behooves us not to gloss over it, but to examine it very carefully to remind ourselves everything written in the word of God is written for our instruction. Everything. And so, friends, we take a second Lord's Day to look at Solomon's construction project, the house of God, and as we discover now in chapter 7, the house or the palace of the king. There are two different houses being built in these chapters. This morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the king's palace described in verses 1 to 12. And then for the bulk of our time, we're going to return back to the temple itself. We're going to admire the finishing touches that brought the temple to its final completion. And so in one sense, this is a chapter about home decoration. Remember uh, last time we talked about uh, taking a trip to Ikea. And actually, it was funny. Someone messaged me that afternoon. They said, Pastor, I'm applying the sermon. I'm, I'm at Ikea with my wife. So I didn't know whether to uh, congratulate him or to rebuke him for Sabbath breaking. But uh, just kidding. But uh, um, we're back in Ikea this morning. We're back uh, in this uh, section about home decoration. Well, let's consider, first of all, the, uh, the palace, the home that Solomon built for himself. And it's interesting to notice, I think, that in the layout of these chapters, the description of the royal palace is actually sandwiched. Uh, you could even almost say that this section on, to- on Solomon's palace is hidden away in the middle of the larger and more significant narrative of the temple. <clears throat> there, there's significance not only in what the Bible says, but how the Bible is structured. And how it's written, we ought to pay attention to that. 
The building of the temple we know occupies a number of successive chapters in Kings and Chronicles. The building of Solomon's palace occupies a mere 12 verses at the beginning of chapter 7. And this, I'm convinced, is very significant by design of the inspired author, helping us as the readers understand the relative insignificance, the the relative importance of the two building projects. That in comparison with the building of the temple, the building of God's house, the, the king's house pales in significance. And so there's an intentional effort on the part of our inspired author to de-emphasize the building of Solomon's palace. And uh, we could almost say, almost to conceal it as a footnote in the larger story of the temple. Nevertheless, we do read in chapter 7 this this rather detailed description of Solomon's house, some of the public buildings that the king commissioned. And some of you are keen and careful readers of the biblical text. You may have noticed chapter 7 opens with a vivid contrast. And so let's uh, refresh our memories for just a moment. We we look back to the uh, last verse of chapter 6. This is chapter 6, verse 38. It says, Now in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, The house was completed throughout all its parts and according to its plan. So he built it, and he's speaking here about the temple, he built it in seven years. And now look with me at the first verse of chapter 7. This is the contrast. Now Solomon built his own house 13 years, and he completed all his house. Although a lot more space in the book of Kings is occupied with the construction of the temple, thereby emphasizing its greater significance, you will notice here in verse 1 that a lot more time was taken up in the building of the palace. More biblical space devoted to the building of the temple, far more time devoted to the building of the royal palace. Indeed, we discover here Solomon spent nearly twice as long building his own house as he did building God's house. Now, the temple was not a huge building. We learned that last year, a relatively small building. It took seven years to complete that building. That in itself is quite a long period of time, but the palace takes 13 years. And uh, there's a debate in the commentaries among the scholars about the moral significance of this observation, but but I am convinced that this, this is not a fluke. This is not a a coincidence or an accident, the author has chosen to put seven years of temple building right next to 13 years of palace building. This, I believe, is an intentional contrast. It is, I believe, an effort to draw our attention to yet another early warning sign about this king named Solomon and Solomon's tendency to get his priorities messed up. Now, although the early chapters of 1 Kings, they are overwhelmingly positive towards King Solomon, they are actually written in such a way as to highlight Solomon's great wisdom, Solomon's great administrative skill. These chapters are also exposing some of the king's moral faults. He's not being presented in these chapters as, as a perfect king. He's a good king, but he's not the perfect king. And we've taken note of this already. Previous chapter, Solomon violates God's law. Deuteronomy 17, he violates that in forging a marriage alliance with the Egyptian pharaoh. 
And uh, Solomon also loves to use forced labor. He loves to use his power of conscription to build all of these different things. And it brings to mind some of the warnings that Samuel had warned the people about. Guys, if you want a king like the other nations, you need to know what you're getting into. He is going to tyrannize you. He's going to abuse his power. And we see already in Solomon's reigns early signs of trouble. We see some tendencies here that that begin to give us pause. And once again here, the beginning of chapter 7, it seems that the author is putting his finger on another trouble spot. Uh, This is a king who apparently is more concerned with building his own house than he is with building God's house. Now, of course, friends, in saying this, in drawing these interpretations, we have to be careful. Because it is true, there, there is no explicit moral evaluation. There is no extended commentary provided for us as the readers. What we have here is an observation, an observation and a contrast. And we ought also to keep in mind the buildings described in the opening 12 verses, these are not only for Solomon's personal enjoyment. You read it carefully, you'll, you'll, you'll notice here that the buildings at the palace, it fulfills a civic or a public function that benefits not only the king, but the nation as a whole. These are um, civic buildings. These are uh, civic structures. We read, for example, verses 1 to 5 about a very large building called the Forest of Lebanon. It was a massive cedar hall. It was built around four rows of cedar beams. It was a construction style that when you went into this massive hall, it gave you the impression that you were standing in the forest uh, with these massive uh, cedar beams and pillars. And we're not told exactly what this great room was used for. Later on in chapter 10, uh, also in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 22, we, we do learn that there were some shields and some armor that was placed in this room. Perhaps uh, this particular building was used in part as the armory and that it served a military function. Now the second building, the one described in verse 6, this may have been an entrance to the larger hall, the forest of Lebanon. Maybe it was a freestanding building, and it's called the Hall of Pillars. And then there's a third building described in verse 7, the Hall of Judgment. This is Solomon's throne room. This is the place where he would sit on his throne, he would execute justice in hearing and deciding legal cases. In modern day terms, we would call the hall of judgment the courthouse. This was the courthouse. It was the throne room of the king. And then finally, verse 8 tells us about the private residences. There was one house that Solomon built for his own use and uh, a second uh, major house that he built for his Egyptian wife. And uh, possibly the second building became the home for his entire harem, as we know that Solomon uh, eventually uh, had a thousand women, uh, wives and and concubines. Verses 9 to 12, we discover something about the cost involved in the building project, the quality of the workmanship, the massive foundation stones, some of them being like 15 uh, feet long. Every time they're mentioned... The cost of them is pointed out. It says that they're, they're precious stones or that they're costly stones. It's pointing out uh, how much it costs to build these various 
public and private buildings. Solomon spared no expense in the construction of his palace. It was a lot bigger than the temple. It was a lot more expensive to build. Although it's hard to know from these verses how critical we ought to be of King Solomon, this section is written in such a way as to grab our attention and to show us that there is a problem with the king's priorities. The amount of time, the amount of money that goes into his own palace is compared to the amount of time and money going into the temple. Indeed, friends, we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon struggled greatly with the sin of materialism. He struggled greatly with idolatry in this area of his life. He squandered a great deal of life seeking satisfaction, wealth, and pleasure. And we know that very well because it was just a few months ago that we studied through the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon speaks about that, in particular Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so at some point in his 40-year reign, Solomon succumbs to the allure of materialism and it becomes for Solomon an idolatrous obsession. Becomes for this king a distraction from the real meaning of life, from the real work God has given him to do. And friends, we too ought to take warning from the text before us today as we read about this man named Solomon to take this as an occasion to examine our own hearts for the sin of idolatry. For we face the same temptation in our own culture and time to seek satisfaction in possessions, to seek satisfaction in houses, to become distracted in the course of our God-given mission and mandate. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with owning a house. There's nothing wrong with having money and possessions with which to beautify your home. Indeed, those things are not wrong. They are not sinful in and of themselves. Houses and possessions are to be viewed as gifts from the Lord. If you own a home, if you live in a rented home, you ought to rejoice in that blessing. You ought to give thanks to the Lord for that blessing. If you own some possessions and some furniture with which to beautify your home, think of those things as evidence of God's kindness towards you. This is God's goodness, God's kindness and grace in very practical ways. But be very careful, Christian friends, that your life does not become focused or centered upon material things. It's a great snare, a great temptation in our culture today. You you end up getting so enamored with your possessions, with the pursuit of your possessions, that you get distracted from the main things. And often this is idolatry. we, We sometimes, I think, as Christians, think of idols as bad things. But you know what idols are most often? They're usually good things that become ultimate things. They're they're usually not things that are bad in and of themselves. They're good things that that become out of order and they distract us from the main priorities of life so that our hearts fall in love with the gifts that God gives rather than pursuing after the giver. And so we see early warning signs. Solomon's priorities are off kilter. And our response to that is not just to sit in judgment of Solomon, but to examine ourselves. And to heed the warning of the Apostle Paul Applying to all of us here in modern Canada, some of you say, well, I'm not rich. If you compare your plight with the plight of other nations, we are all rich. Every single person sitting in this room is rich. 
and the things of this world. And so Paul's command applies to each and every person in this room. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And haven't we seen the truth of that? The uncertainty of wealth. The uncertainty of riches and possessions. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Enjoy the gifts that God graciously gives to you, but always remember, we are stewards of these manifold blessings and this sin-cursed world, this is not our final destination. Don't get your priorities messed up. And so having looked at Solomon's royal palace, we turn in verse 13 to the main theme of the temple, the decorations, the articles of furniture that the temple contained. Uh, I think that it's, it's helpful uh, if you're studying this later on this afternoon, if you want to reread the text, do so with one finger back in the book of Exodus. Uh, in particular, Exodus 25 to 31, these chapters in which we learn about the wilderness tabernacle and the original design that was revealed to Moses. Now we're, we're going to see, and we've already seen this, Solomon's temple was not structurally identical to the wilderness tabernacle. It wasn't identical. You can see that later on when you look at uh, the models that, that Wes has kindly brought this morning. You're going to see they're not structurally identical, but there are structural similarities. And it's beyond doubt that the temple preserved the basic layout and function of the tabernacle. A few weeks ago, three weeks ago, we had the opportunity to observe the way that Solomon built the temple, the way in which Solomon divided the temple into different liturgical spaces. There was the outer courtyard in which the priests would greet the worshiper. They would offer sacrifice upon the main altar. Then there was the interior space, the main enclosed building, which was further divided into two different rooms, one rectangular room that was called the holy place, and then a cubic room, that was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. So there were three main spaces in Jewish temple worship, the outer court and then the two inner rooms. Each one of these spaces corresponding, of course, to the original layout and pattern of the tabernacle. And so I want you to understand this, friends, that as Solomon was building the temple, he wasn't making it up as he went along. He wasn't making it up as he went along. He, he wasn't introducing his own religious innovations. Solomon was following God's revealed law because he wanted the people to worship God rightly. He wanted them to worship according to God's revealed truth. And by the way, friends, there's a great lesson there for all of us today. We worship God as God wants to be worshipped. You understand that? We worship God as He wants to be worshipped, not as we think we should do it. And we just make it up as we go along. No, that's not the way that it works. God's people rightly worship God when we worship according to God's Revelation, where do we find out how God wants to be worshipped? Where do we find that out? Do we find it out in the church growth seminar? You know, some church growth 
guru, mega church pastor who comes up with a new book on how to grow the church? No, we, we figure that out by reading God's Word. We read God's Word in Christian theology, and here's your theological term of the day, the regulative principle. The regulative principle in worship, which simply means Christian worship is to be regulated and governed by the Word of God and not by your opinion. God doesn't care about your opinion or my opinion. He cares about His opinion. His opinion, which He has told us in His Word. Our opinions don't matter. This is the regulative principle of worship. We learn it here, 1 Kings 5, 6, the overall layout of the temple in accordance with God's written revelation. Now, we come to chapter 7, we discover in the shift from the layout of the temple to the furnishing of the temple, the same principle, the utensils, the furniture pieces needed for God to be rightly worshipped by his people. And so in the remainder of our sermon today, We're just going to take some time together to look at each one of these items of sacred furniture. We're going to consider the historical significance of each one of these items. And then we're going to see the greater redemptive historical significance. How each one of these items of furniture was significant historically in Israel's worship, but also that each one of them points beyond that and finds a greater fulfillment in the new covenant church. Now, already in our study of First Kings, we've come across a number of different names. Lots of different names, especially in the early chapters, the names of all those men who served in Solomon's illustration, one administration. And once again, verse 13, here is another forgotten name of the Bible. This is uh, good for uh, Bible trivia. Forgotten man of the Bible. This man named Hiram, given the duty of making most of the temple's furniture. Look with me again at verses 13 to 14 of our text. We meet this man. It says, King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and discernment and knowledge to do any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, some of you will remember that a couple chapters ago in in 1 Kings, there was another guy from Tyre named Hiram. You say, well, this is interesting. The king of Tyre is making all of the bronze furniture. No. Uh, These are two different men uh, with the same name. Okay, so it's a a little bit confusing, but Two different guys who, who happen to have the same name. King Hiram was the king who, who made provided all the lumber that was needed for the construction. Now this is a, another guy named Hiram who is an expert in, uh, in bronze. He's an expert in, uh, in crafting and casting metal. Now it's very interesting what the Bible tells us about this man. Verse 13, we're told that Hiram was an Israelite of mixed descent. This is very interesting. His mother was a Jewish widow from the tribe of Naphtali, a down-and-out family. And his father was a Gentile from the northern country of Tyre. 
And we learn also from the text, it was from his Gentile father that Hiram learned the trade of working with metal and bronze. This was a very, very important skill, a very important trade in the ancient world. Now, a few weeks ago, we, we, we mentioned this same truth. I'm going to point it out again this morning. It is theologically significant that we have these Gentiles involved at different levels in the building of the temple. There, there's a reason why the text tells you these things. It's not an accident that it's there. King Hiram, a Gentile, provides all the cedar lumber for the project. Now we have this other guy, this second Hiram, mixed ethnicity, and he provides the bronze furniture. So what's the importance in that? Well, this is a very important reminder. God's plan of salvation, friends, was never, was never only for one nation. It was never only for one people group. It was never for only one ethnicity. God's plan from the beginning of time was the salvation of all nations. All nations. He chose one nation, one family, through which all other nations, all other families would be blessed. And as we pointed out last time, the prophet Isaiah foresaw the nations of the world streaming towards the true temple of God. And that, by the way, friends, is in part a prophetic picture of the salvation right now being fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. Because you know what? The gospel of the kingdom is going out to the nations. And the nations are coming into the true temple. They are being incorporated into God's true temple, living stones from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. And so let us understand the Old Testament does not exclude believing Gentiles from God's covenant promise. We would do well to remind ourselves, especially in this Advent season, we think about the uh, lineage of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that, that Jesus is a descendant of King David, and that David's grandmother, that Solomon's great-grandmother, was a Gentile, uh, a woman of Moab by the name of Ruth who was brought into the covenant community by faith in Israel's God. And so the kings of Israel, including David and Solomon, had Gentile ancestors. The temple of Israel has Gentile craftsmanship. And the Old Testament authors want you to know that. And to understand that, that God's plan of salvation, understand this, friends, is for all people. All kinds of people. Everywhere. The temple was always intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was a type. It was a prefiguring of the Christian church, this multinational, multi-ethnic body of believers. But beyond Hiram's mixed ethnicity, is the way in which he's introduced to us, it says here, he was a man filled with wisdom and discernment and knowledge to do any work in bronze. You flip back for a moment to Exodus 31, you'll see the description of Hiram is intentionally patterned after the description of another craftsman by the name of Bezalel. You can uh, see this for yourself. Exodus 31, verse 1. These are the words in the context of the building of the tabernacle. Exodus 31, 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. <coughs> And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, discernment, and knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship to devise artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. 
And so during the time of Moses, the construction of the tabernacle, God raises a skilled craftsman named Bezalel to furnish the tabernacle. Now the Lord makes the same provision during the time of Solomon. The biblical description of the two men, almost identical. And we are meant as the reader to connect the dots. God is involved here. This isn't just Solomon's idea. God is involved in this. God is raising up the people that are needed to build this temple to the glory of his own name. Furthermore, the description of Hiram as a man being filled with wisdom and discernment to work in bronze also reminds us of the great value God places upon creativity. And the fact that every vocation, every calling is holy when it's being done with excellence and offered in worship to the Lord. We had a a great example of this last night, didn't we? Those of us who who came to the concert last night, we, we enjoyed the beauty of music. And uh, music sung and played with excellence. That glorifies God. That's not a waste of time. Glorifies the Lord. The Old Testament era, we may be tempted to assume the priests were more holy in their vocation than the farmer out in the field or the blacksmith working in the forge. Here in 1 Kings 7, we're reminded God designed each one of us with different skills and gifts that are to be used for His glory. We ought to give thanks then, not only for members of the clergy who have been called and equipped to serve the Lord as teachers and preachers. We don't just thank God for the clergy, we thank God for every Christian. Every Christian minister. I I don't like the term minister. You know why? Because it implies that the pastor is the minister. That's not true. You are the ministers. We're all together the ministers. We all have a different ministry to do. And God has called and equipped you, brother and sister, in your own unique and special way. And so rather than dishonoring God by wishing you were someone else, rather than deprecating your own unique skill and personality, embrace God's sovereign wisdom. Embrace it. Embrace the lot that he's assigned to you. You say, well, I wish he would have done things different. Well, that's not the way he did things. Embrace the lot that he's given to you and and trust he has given you a unique personality. He has given you a unique gift. You have a a job to do that I can't do. Don't bury your talent in the ground. Don't assume that God doesn't have a role for you to play. Don't envy the talent that God has given to someone else. Invest yourself fully in God's kingdom. Trust that God has a good plan for you. That he will use you. You know, friends, as I was reading about this man named Hiram, about the unique role that God entrusted to him, I mean, we could think of lots of examples, but I was thinking this week about our brother Jeremy and uh, the documentary that Jeremy and his team, Erica and some others, Ryan and others were working on that documentary together. And I was thinking, man, and I joked with Jeremy, I said, I could have done the documentary a lot cheaper on my iPhone, you know? Um, but I could never have done that. I could never have done that. Why? Because God is, has specifically gifted and equipped our brother to do something that others cannot, cannot do. That, that's wonderful. We ought to give thanks for that. 
We ought to rejoice in that. God has raised up this creative, talented Christian brother. And it should spur all of us on to use our own abilities. To use our own gifts. To to work for the Lord with excellence. To glorify Him. This is really about fulfilling the creation mandate. About exercising dominion, which is how we bear the image of God on this earth. And so God specifically chose and gifted this man Hiram to furnish the temple in bronze. What what follows then in verses 15 to 47 is a list, a description of all of the things that this man skillfully crafted at Solomon's request. Now the first item, or I should say items, described in verses 15 to 22, they are at the same time the most imposing in terms of their sheer size, and also the least important in terms of their liturgical uses, they were the only two decorative items that Solomon commissioned Hiram to make. And those, of course, were these two bronze pillars that stood at the temple's entrance. Now, now it is possible, and some have suggested, that these were structural pillars holding up the roof of the portico, or the porch of the temple, but far more likely, these were freestanding decorative pillars. Two pillars, freestanding in front of the entrance of great beauty and, and symbolic significance. And we're told by the author, Hiram built two of them. Each one of them was about 30 feet tall and 18 feet in circumference. These are big pillars. <laughs> and these two imposing pillars stood near the front entrance of the temple. As we learn in verse 21, they named them. Now, this is kind of strange. We, we spent one of our... Um, family worship days today, learning about the pillars. And I don't think my kids will ever forget the names of the two, the two pillars. I said, you guys are going to have an edge in Bible trivia now that you know the names of the, of the two pillars. But it uh, seems kind of strange. One of them is called Jachin, and the other one is called Boaz. But the names are part of the importance. The names uh, indicate the significance of, uh, of the pillars. The Hebrew word Jachin means Yahweh has established. And it most likely refers, it's the same verb that's used in the Davidic covenant, referring to the establishment of the Davidic dynasty of kings, God's promise to David that he would establish his house forever. And so one pillar represents the establishment of the king of Israel and the Davidic monarchy. The name of the second pillar is Boaz. And Boaz means strength. And this second pillar symbolizes the mighty power of God to uphold the king and the nation. And so we have these two pillars, visible reminders of the Davidic covenant, God's promise to establish the king forever, and God's power to uphold him. It's God's promise and God's power. That's the significance of the two pillars. In addition, if you know your Bible, it's very likely that the pillars called to mind and called to the worshippers' memory the early history of Israel, God leading them through the wilderness by what? By a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was by means of two pillars that God established Israel in the promised land. And His strong and mighty arm that led them out of slavery. And so in the context of the Old Testament, the pillars are meaningful in terms of their symbolism. But when we get to the New Testament... They're still meaningful for us. This isn't just Bible trivia. 
this is meaningful for us. Why? Because the apostles use the same symbol of the pillar. 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul says that the Christian church is the pillar and buttress of truth. The pillar and the buttress of truth. The church, of course, being the fulfillment of the Old Covenant temple and the reality to which that temple was pointing. And then again, Revelation chapter 3, the image of the pillars appears one final time in the Bible. Remember, Christ promises the church in Philadelphia. He says to the one who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God. Pillar in the sanctuary, sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it anymore. Just as Christ established Solomon's kingdom in the Old Covenant, he has established Christ's kingdom in the New, the true Davidic king, the one who holds us firmly established in the faith. We see, that, therefore, the two pillars have significance not only for God's people in the Old Covenant, but for God's people in the New. Christ has established the church as the pillar and buttress of truth. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Second piece of furniture, Hiram made for the temple. This second piece is actually strangely, somewhat mysteriously omitted here in the context of 1 Kings 7. But it is mentioned in the parallel section in 2 Chronicles 4. And this is the fact that Hiram made a bronze altar 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and then 10 cubits in height. And so the reference for that, 2 Chronicles 4, verse 1. The bronze altar, of course, used for animal sacrifice. It stood in the outer portion of the temporal courtyard. And although the bronze altar is not specifically listed here in chapter 7 by the author, later on in chapter 8, we're going to see Solomon sacrificed nearly 150,000 animals on that altar as part of the temple's dedication ceremony. Just think about that. 150,000 animals. And the text says there were so many sacrifices that were offered that the bronze altar was too small. Solomon had to sanctify another section of of the outer courtyard to accommodate the sheer volume of sacrifice that was being offered. Now in the sacrificial system, the bronze altar, this is one of the most important features of the temple. It was on that altar that the priests would make atonement for various sins. They would would receive the guilt offerings and the sin offerings that the people would bring to the temple. This was the bloodiest part of temple worship. There was blood constantly flowing from this altar. A grim reminder for every worshiper, the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. It was a visible token of the terrible consequences of sin, an indication God's justice requires a sin substitute. It was the innocent animal dying in the place of the guilty sinner. And as Christians, we know on this side of the cross, the author to the Hebrews tells us explicitly in the 10th chapter of his epistle that those animal sacrifices could never take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. All of those animal sacrifices, what what were they? They were types and shadows pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice, pointing towards the ultimate act of substitution that would later on take place at the cross. That is the true substitution. The sinless Son of God dying in the place of guilty sinners. God's Son bearing God's wrath on our behalf. 
propitiating God's wrath, turning his anger away so that we can be forgiven of our sin. Animal sacrifice was an essential aspect of atonement in the Old Covenant. Today, the cross of Calvary fulfills the function of the bronze altar. Do we need to ever again sacrifice an animal on an altar? Never, ever again. Indeed, I I would go so far as to say that an animal sacrifice on this side of Calvary would be idolatrous. To sacrifice an animal on an altar on this side of Calvary would be blasphemous. See, the only altar that you and I need today as Christian believers is the altar that stood on Calvary's hill. It is the old rugged cross. On this note, we ought to be careful also in the way that we speak about the commemoration of Christ's unique sacrifice. We have a number of names for that. The Eucharist, Communion, the Lord's Table. My favorite is the Lord's Table. Because I'm going to point out the obvious to you. That we have a communion table and not a communion altar. We have a table but not an altar. It's rather common today to hear Christians colloquially, mistakenly refer to the communion table as an altar. Probably we've all done that. At times called it an altar. In Roman Catholic theology, they do believe it's an altar. Do you know what happens in the Roman Catholic Mass or what they believe happens in the Roman Catholic Mass? They they believe that every time that the priest says the words of institution, that the, the bread and the wine are physically turned into the body and the blood of Christ and that he is sacrificed on that altar at every single Mass. That is not what the Bible teaches about communion. That is not what we believe as Protestant Christians. Never once are we ever commanded to have priests who sacrifice Christ over and over again upon an altar. That's totally foreign to to biblical Christianity. What do we have in the Bible? We have Jesus Christ communing with his disciples around the table in the upper room. We commune around a table, not in the presence of a Christ who is still hanging on the cross. That's the reason, by the way, why in Protestant churches we don't have crucifix. Christ is not on the cross anymore. He's risen. He's risen from the dead. We don't have a Savior who's still hanging on a cross. And so, brethren, we do not run to altars. We do not run to priests. We do not run to man-made temples in an effort to be forgiven and cleansed of our sin. We run to the cross of Christ. Where the Lamb of God was slain once and for all and where full forgiveness and pardon can be found. Third item here, the third grouping of items Hiram makes, described verse 23 as a description of the bronze laver, smaller water vessels commissioned for the temple's ritual cleansings. The first place in the Bible that we read about the, the laver is back in Exodus 30 verse 17. It was a big bronze basin that the priests would wash themselves in. And so here again, from Exodus 30, we see Solomon is following God's law and furnishing the temple. And he makes a new laver, which he calls the sea. That's meant to give you the impression of how big this thing was. It's not just a laver, it's the sea. (laughs) 
The casting of this massive bronze bowl is remarkable in and of itself. We're told in verse 24, the bronze base and all the artistic features that were placed upon it were all cast at the same time. It was all done at once. And we're told later on in verse 6, very uh, interesting technical detail, Hiram produced all the bronze furniture away from Jerusalem in the Jordan plain because of all the clay that was available there. Now, I, I'm a, a preacher. I don't know anything about making bronze. Um, so I was interested to, to learn a little bit in my studies this week. It was a very difficult thing to do properly, and especially for items this large. Do you know how they made these things? They, and this, is, this challenge is also the idea that people in the ancient world were stupid. Okay, there's this thing uh, C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery that we think that we're so much smarter than people in the past. They, they were remarkably advanced. And so to make all of these items, this is what they would do. They would have to make a full-size wax impression of the item, perfectly detailed, and then they would pack that wax uh, impression in clay, and they would partially bury it. And then they'd light a fire underneath of it, and they would melt off all of the wax, and they would channel the wax away, and you'd be left with a hollow form, and then you'd fill the hollow form with molten metal, which would have to be purified in advance from ore. And so you, you can imagine, uh, those of you who are in the trades know you don't want to do a job twice. It's expensive to mess up. Imagine the patience and skill of this man. You had, to, you had one shot at getting this right. You had to make this wax impression and uh, you had to make sure all of the melted wax was removed. If there was any of it left, it would mess it up. And if you messed up, you have to start over again. This is why Solomon wanted somebody who knew what he was doing. (laughs) And this thing is so big, cast in one piece, it holds, according uh, to the the measurements here, about 12,000 gallons By the way, that's the size of a backyard swimming pool. This is a huge bowl. And in addition to the main laver, the main sea, there's these 10 smaller containers placed on bronze carts. There's five carts, five basins on each side of the temple courtyard. Each one of the smaller basins holds 200 gallons of water. It's a lot of water. According to 2 Chronicles 4, these smaller containers never mention Specifically, in connection with the original tabernacle, they were used for the ritual washing of the animal sacrifices. And as we could imagine, the ornate carts, the basins, the wheels, all of this required an immense amount of skill and time. And the amount of bronze that went into this, it says that there was so much bronze that Solomon didn't even bother to measure it. The use of the bronze sea, the ten smaller basins, they're bound up in the symbolism of human sin and our need to be cleansed from sin. In the context of the temple worship, it was the Levites who were physically cleansed as they ministered in God's presence and they would ritually wash themselves in the laver before they performed their duty. But you know, friends, one of the differences that takes place as we move from the old covenant to the new is the fact that each and every Christian is now a priest before God. You're a priest, and I'm a priest. We are all priests before God, and that we as priests enter the presence of our God, not through the mediation of any sinful human being, 
but through the mediation of Christ alone, the sinless Son of God. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all. And because we no longer need the mediation of a priest in the new covenant, the author to the Hebrews encourages us in chapter 10 verse 22 with these words about cleansing. He says to us, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The author to the Hebrews spoke those words. He certainly had the bronze laver in the forefront of his mind. This requirement for Levites to be physically cleansed before they drew near to God for worship. And because everything in the temple is symbolic and typological, so is the bronze laver. It is a picture, it is a portrait, a foreshadowing of the cleansing power of Christ's blood that washes us clean from sin and presents us whiter than snow. As Christians living under the new covenant, we know this internal spiritual cleansing is outwardly pictured through one of the ordinances. You know which one? The ordinance of believers' baptism. Not that the water itself cleanses us from sin, but the water pictures the cleansing that has already taken place. And so this is the benefit and the blessing of the new covenant. You and I, all of us here who know the Lord, we are all priests to God. We have all been fully cleansed and washed by Christ's blood. We have all been fully granted this access into the holy place so that we can be free of guilt and shame. Let us therefore draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We've been considering the bronze items crafted by Hiram and We've learned about the pillars, the altar, the laver, each one fulfilling a symbolic function. Fourth group of items Hiram produces are described in verse 40. It says, Hiram made the lavers, the shovels, and the bowls. So Hiram completed doing all the work he did for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. And so in addition to all of the large pieces of furniture, Solomon was commissioned this man to make the smaller tools, the utensils that the priests would have used in the daily course of their ministry. And so these were the tools that were used for sprinkling blood, for transporting ashes from one place to another. They were the liturgical tools that the priests used. And you know, friends, just as the priests in Solomon's temple offered sacrifices by means of these various bronze tools, we Christians function as priests in God's spiritual temple, and we, all of us, offer spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, it says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if we look carefully through the New Testament, we learn what those sacrifices are and how we offer them rightly in the New Covenant. You know, the Bible speaks about Prayer and imagery that draws from the Old Covenant temple. The elders of Revelation chapter 5, it says they're holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And so the offering of prayer is one of the spiritual sacrifices that we bring as God's priests. And the book of Hebrews talks about the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. we praise the Lord even in the midst of great trial and suffering. And the Apostle Paul says that we ought to present our bodies as living sacrifices. 
Romans chapter 12, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. Just as the priest would place the body of the sacrificial animal up upon that bronze altar, we Christians continually, daily, moment by moment, place ourselves upon the altar. Living sacrifices to God. It's been said before, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it has a tendency to crawl off again. And so we put ourselves on to that altar again and again. Well, having considered the bronze furnishings, verses 48 to 51 talk about a number of gold items that were made for use inside of the temple. Verse 48, Solomon made also the furniture which was in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of presence inside of the holy place, and that was the first of the two interior rooms, there was a golden altar and a golden table. And unlike the bronze altar that was used for animal sacrifice, the golden altar was used for incense offerings. You can learn about that in Exodus chapter 30. It was there at the golden altar. The Levites would offer incense twice a day, once in the morning, a second time in the evening. And that fragrant incense would visibly rise from the table to the ceiling. As a symbol of prayer. Although we Christians no longer need to offer incense as part of the outward form of our new covenant worship, we ought to recognize, all of us, the vital importance of prayer. Here at Rosedale, we, we typically don't carry around, a, I think it's called a thurible incense, that we fill the room with incense, but we ought to be filling this room with the incense of our prayer. That's the incense that God wants in the new covenant. This is the spiritual sacrifice we offer to the Lord. In addition to the prayers that we offer up through Christ are the prayers that Christ offers on our behalf. He is our great high priest who is right now interceding for us. The fragrant incense of his prayers ascending before the Father's throne. The golden altar speaks of Christ's intercessory work in a similar way The other golden items inside the holy place symbolize aspects of Christ's redemptive and priestly work. Aside from the golden altar, there's a golden table in the holy place. On the golden table are 12 loaves of bread baked and placed on the table every Sabbath day, stacked in two stacks of six loaves each. The bread is symbolic, but it was also part of the food that the Levites would eat as they went about their ministry. Leviticus 24, it tells us about the bread. It says, You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall set them in two piles, six in each pile, the table of gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile. That's interesting to think about for uh, Advent, that there was frankincense in the bread of presence and that it was placed on a gold table. That it may go with the bread as a memorial portion as food offering to the Lord. The bread that was placed on the table, 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the bread representing God's provision for Israel during their wilderness wanderings, including the manna that he provided for them. And in the New Testament, Jesus clearly identifies himself with the bread. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the true source of spiritual nourishment. 
Do you think that it's a coincidence, friends, that Jesus specifically chose the symbol of bread to represent his body that was given to us on the cross? The bread we partake of each week when we gather around his table. Finally, we come to the golden lampstand, which also stood in the holy place. In the tabernacle, there was one lampstand that stood in the room. In Solomon's temple, there were ten of them. I think that was not for theological reasons, but for practical reasons. They, they had a practical function of lighting the room. But they also served a symbolic purpose, showing that God was the true source of light and life in the world. And again, Jesus uses the symbol of light to explain his ministry on earth. He says in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the true spiritual bread. He's the true spiritual light. He is the light, John 1, who shines on all men. And as his covenant people in the church, we Christians are commissioned by the Lord Jesus to reflect his light to the dark world around us. Says Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you Christians, you disciples, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Brethren, it's a wonderful blessing to have a house filled with beautiful furniture. I'm thankful for the furniture in our home. But no furniture on earth compares with the items we've been talking about today. Each piece of furniture representing some aspect of Christ's magnificent person work. His church is the pillar of truth. His cross is the altar of sacrifice. His blood is the cleansing agent. His intercessory prayer is the incense that ascends before God's throne. His body is the bread. His gospel is the light that shines into the darkness. Make sure, Christian brother and sister, that this is the furniture that you value the most. Amen.